Most of us know when we haven't been treated fairly, when we interact with the healthcare system and we suspect we're being dealt with differently because of the color of our skin or our weight or our gender or something else, the experience can not only be hurtful but potentially harmful. What makes things even more complicated is that the healthcare practitioner or the staff person we're interacting with may not be aware that something they've said or done or not said or done could be the result of unconscious or implicit bias. So what then? We're going to dig into this topic and more as we look at how healthcare can work toward health equity on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Implicit bias is one of many topics included in a new white paper IHI published this summer, Achieving Health Equity, a Guide for Healthcare Organizations. Two of its authors are here, along with two guests whose efforts are part of the matrix of solutions and strategies needed. We also have a guest here from um, IHI who's making a big difference in what IHI as an organization is doing. To introductions in just a moment, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you all how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is a poll right now, but it will be our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks a lot, John. And just a reminder, as John said, if you do have any audio issues, uh, consider the uh, quick troubleshooting things and uh, otherwise get in touch with web, web um, the WHI WebEx admin, uh, as noted on the screen. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions about halfway through the show. We also welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation. And if you're only tuned into WIHI by the phone and you're not logged in by computer, you are welcome to email info at IHI to get hold of the materials we'll be sharing on the show. So let's welcome our panel. And as John mentioned, by the way, we've got a poll going that we'll uh, kind of keep flipping back and forth to, uh, trying to get a lot in today. So we're doing some things. We're multitasking and doing some things simultaneously. Joining us by phone, we have Ron Wyatt. He's the patient safety officer and medical director at the Joint Commission. Ron also leads the Joint Commission's efforts to address health and healthcare disparity and equity. He's a former fellow at IIT. 
Chai, and Ron is the lead author on the white paper we're discussing today. Welcome, Ron. Ron is there, I know. We just heard from him. Ron, are you there? All right. We know Ron is on the line, so we'll make sure he's uh, presente. Okay. Also on the phone, Anurag Gupta is the founder and CEO of Be More America, a social enterprise that trains health professionals in strategies to hack unconscious bias and end health inequities and inequalities. Welcome, Anurag. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Here in the studio, Abigail Ortiz has worked at Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center since 2003. She oversees the center's community health initiatives with a major focus on eliminating racial inequities in health. Abigail is also a member of IHI's Equity Advisory Group. It's great to have you with us, Abigail. Thank you for having me. Back to the phone, we have Kedar Mate. He's IHI's Chief Innovation and Education Officer. Kedar is a co-author on this new white paper from IHI, Achieving Health Equity. Welcome, Kadar. Good to be with you, Madge. And our final panelist in the studio is Alex Anderson, a research associate, excuse me, associate with IHI's innovation team, a founder and co-chair of IHI's Diversity and Inclusion Council, and a member of IHI's Equity Development Team. Thanks for all the help with today's show, Alex. Thanks, man. All right. So, John, let's show that poll uh, as we're going to kick things off with Kadar. I uh, want you to take a look at this polling question. I'm going to also see if I can get to it myself. Where is it? There it is. So we're just taking a quick kind of a pulse sort of survey. Um, it's not always easy to acknowledge one's own biases, but be as honest as you can uh, about the degree to which you feel sometimes your own assumptions, biases, uh, inferences, whatever, uh, may actually enter into the exam room, which is something we're going to hear more about uh, on today's show. So go ahead and take the poll. Uh, John will be open for about five minutes, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll take a look at the results uh, a little further into the program. All right, I'm going to now turn to Kadar. This new white paper, Achieving Health Equity, it covers a lot of ground, but at its core, uh, it's offering healthcare organizations some actionable ways to have a much, much greater impact on health disparities and the health of communities. Some very fresh new ideas. So I want to ask you, what's so powerful about this emphasis when it comes to health inequities? Thanks, Kadar. Well, thank you, Matt, Jen. It's a great privilege to be on this program with you and talking about this incredibly important topic. Um, as, as many people on the, in the WIHI audience would know, it's been nearly 15 years since the Institute of Medicine here in the United States published uh, the Unequal Treatment Report highlighting racial and ethnic inequities in healthcare in the United States. Many reports have followed. We've got multiple papers and publications that have documented the discrepancies in care delivered to different racial and ethnic groups. And even just two weeks ago, the editorial pages of the New York Times, uh, some of you will have read, um, had very sobering news for us about an OECD report that showed rising maternal mortality in the U.S., at least in part due to much higher maternal death rates among African-American women. So we, we know a lot about this. We've, we've known this for a long time. And we also know that at the heart of a lot of these health disparities are the many social determinants of health, education, poverty, housing, and so on. And that combination, I think, often paralyzes healthcare. It often makes healthcare uncertain about how to navigate in the face of so many very difficult and challenging problems. So when we started to look at the question of health equity in our research team here at IHI, we asked the question, what is healthcare's role in all of this? 
what can healthcare do to remediate some of these inequities? And well, there's there's a lot of traditional things that healthcare has been doing, increasing access to care, working on improving cancer screening rates, working on hypertension management in different communities, and that work uh, is is definitely good and very important. But what we realized as we started doing this work was that healthcare organizations in some communities that we were finding were leveraging their total social, political, and economic power to remediate inequities in health in their communities. And this was really powerful. This was a much more comprehensive, all-in strategy, one that would, yes, work on clinical disparities, but would also re-examine the way that health systems made their financial investments, uh, how their human resource policies were constructed and, and delivered, how their procurement and building policies were set up, where did these health systems place their new facilities, how community health needs assessments were conducted and how community benefit dollars were allocated, and how the leadership teams themselves of these institutions were composed. We, we built a framework, which uh, yeah, those of you that are on the web can see on the next slide, um, and we called it Making Health Equity a Strategic Priority. And for every single idea that's contained in the framework, which is also in the white paper, we found examples from health systems all over the country. Just for example, one idea in uh, number three in the, in the framework about deploying specific strategies to address the multiple determinants of health, Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, they considered outsourcing their housekeeping services to a, a, a organization that was not based locally to them. But they decided against it once they realized that uh, there was a significant overlap between the neighborhoods in which the housekeepers lived and some of the more socially complex patients in the health, that the health system actually served. Uh, indeed, four of the housekeepers at Wake Forest were redeployed into a new position called supporters of the health service, in which these workers helped individuals living in their communities with complex needs to better manage their health. That's the kind of a program and the kind of response that a health system can take to improve equity at a, at a whole system level. And of course, there are other examples on the healthcare side. One of my favorites is what Health Partners in Minnesota has been doing for years. They've been taking data, their data, and stratifying it by race and ethnicity and identifying disparities in various uh, 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 major health indicators, for example, mammography and colonoscopy screening, and using their improvement uh, energies to try to remediate those gaps. As a, as a community of healthcare improvers, I think uh, we also have to realize that if we don't specifically focus on the most vulnerable, there's at least some chance that you can improve median performance, raise the median, and yet widen disparities between different groups of patients. And there's a nice paper on the next slide on the, on the uh, WIHI WebEx. Uh, here it is. A nice paper from colleagues at the Disparity Solutions Centers at, at MGH in Boston. They showed, really illustrated visually, um, how those uh, improvement projects themselves can actually widen disparities if we don't pay attention to those that are most vulnerable in our communities. And so uh, this is something that we felt at IHI that is well past time for the improvement community in healthcare to focus on these meaningful issues in a, in a very important way. And just as a way to get started, we developed a self-assessment tool that's at the back of the white paper, a health equity self-assessment tool that healthcare organizations can take to see where they stand on the journey to making health equity a strategic priority. All five of the framework domains and various subsections are in this self-assessment tool. Uh, we, we reference in the appendices other self-assessment tools that are out there, including some very interesting tools, I think, on implicit bias 
and institutional racism. So uh, I encourage those of you that are interested to have a look at the white paper and have a look at the self-assessment tool as well. Thank you, Kadar. Rip-roaring, getting through all of this. Those of you who typically tune to WHI know we, we go through a lot of uh, heft of issues in a, a short amount of time. But uh, hang in there with us. Lots of resources, lots of ways and links uh, for you to follow up with. Thanks a lot, Kadar. Let me now turn to Ron Wyatt from the Joint Commission. So, Ron, we've asked you to define implicit or unconscious bias for us and explain why it's a crucial agenda item for healthcare today. It was clearly very important to the authors to devote time and space to this in the white paper. I think there's this temptation to dive into a lot of work, um, and maybe that kind of self-reflection and examination is often skipped. And I'm curious uh, if you can help us understand why it's so important. Thanks, Ron. Sure. Uh, thanks, Madge. And again, it's a r- really um, honor to be here today. So we jump right into what is implicit bias or what is uh, what's called unconscious bias. Uh, then if we can go to the first slide, then uh, without reading through all those points, what, what we know is that there are attitudes and stereotypes that develop uh, in an unconscious manner. And the output of that then are, are actions and decisions that uh, we make in, in health and health care that impact patients. I think the, the last bullet is the one that uh, is most impactful for me, and it comes from my friend David Williams, you know, there in Boston. And what he, what he describes this is as, quote-unquote, frightening, uh, frightening that, that people who engage in this unconscious behavior is, in fact, a form of unthinking discrimination, and the individual is, frankly, not aware uh, of the fact that they do this. So when we when we started to talk about the white paper and the multiple determinants of health, we, we said there is a root cause that we needed to address, and I would be, uh, I would say in a provocative way, uh, we have to address unconscious and implicit bias if we're to achieve health equity. It is a precondition, is what I would call it. So if we go to the next slide then, uh, we'll, we talk about how unconscious bias uh, becomes uh, operational, how is it applied uh, in uh, our profession. And again, we know that there are these schemas that are set up. They're automatic, and we begin to categorize people by age or gender or race or role or zip code even. And once we map people to these categories, they mean something to us. Some activation process takes place, and that activation, uh, again, is expressed through some interaction with that individual and ultimately the decisions that are either made or not made. So to the next slide, then, if we talk about, well, what are the most prominent characteristics of what we call unconscious implicit bias? What we know, based on years and years of research, is that implicit biases are pervasive. Not only are they pervasive, but they are robust. We also know that there is a distinction uh, made between implicit and explicit biases, uh, even though they're two, the two are related. Uh, we also, uh, from research, know that there are times when implicit biases and implicit associations don't necessarily align with who we are, what we believe, how we were raised, or our declared beliefs. Uh, we hold implicit biases also in favor of our in-group, and research also supports that uh, there are times when um, uh, we hold implicit biases uh, against people of, of our own race, our own ethnicity, or our own uh, geography. Uh, and there are real-world effects to these behaviors. 
that we'll talk about some in the next slide, but what we know also is that implicit biases can be unlearned, and we'll talk about some ways to think about how they're unlearned. Here you see a list of how then unconscious bias and implicit bias can play itself out in everyday life. So for instance, the Chicago resume study where Brandon and Jamal were applying for jobs and most often Brandon was called back for interview versus Jamal. Uh, we look at overweight and obesity and when I talk about overweight and obesity here, we're talking about a disease state and decisions are made for hiring and firing, for interviewing based on uh, a, a person's body mass index. Uh, criminal records are looked at. Uh, your uh, poor credit history can lead to some decision being made. If you have an accent, what we call micro-insults and microaggressions. So in, in my case, I've had episodes where uh, folks pick up on the fact that I have a southern accent. I'm from Alabama. And, and there's this, this implicit association between having a southern accent and not being as intelligent. Uh, people who have disabilities, both physical and cognitive, what we see in, in healthcare and hospitals is that there are biases against people who have hearing loss, for instance. I have a, a friend, a pediatrician in Alabama who took in a child whose um, mother had, had contacted 23 different pediatricians to try to get her child in for care because the child was questioning. So, so uh, individuals who are LGBTQ and I are also exposed to these, these unconscious and implicit biases, and in some cases, uh, explicit bias. So then if we go uh, to the next slide, uh, this is uh, an example of a child who uh, has cystic fibrosis. Uh, the the uh, backstory is that a team of medical providers were uh, challenged over a chest x-ray when a radiologist walked by the, the chest x-ray, looked at the film, and said, oh, that's cystic fibrosis. Well, the team saw this picture of a young black child and never associated cystic fibrosis with this child because in, in their unconscious mind, cystic fibrosis is a uh, what's called a white disease. So you can see then how these, these unconscious biases and implicit bias can play out and, and patient care and treatment and how we interact with our patients. So then if we think about how do we combat unconscious bias, what are the, some of the things that we can do to the next slide? Uh, I think we start by having some basic understanding of our patients' cultures. Where do they come from? Uh, how can we understand at a deeper level uh, what that person experiences every day? Uh, in order to do that, we go to number two, which means don't stereotype our patients. See each patient as an individual. Try to understand and respect the sheer power of an unconscious bias. Then start to, to look at how you can recognize situations that magnify our own stereotypes and our own biases. Uh, to the next slide then. Thank you. So one, some of the things we can do in, in healthcare, in hospitals and amateur care is be familiar with the so-called class standards. Uh, and we've done crosswalks between the class standards and standards here at the Joint Commission. So become familiar with those. Learn how to do effective teach back, uh, asking the patient not what is the matter, but what matters. What's the main problem? What do I need to do? Why is it important for me to do this? So that's the whole part around unconscious implicit bias and being able to communicate with our patients. And, and lastly, it's how we assiduously practice evidence-based best practice for every patient 
every time. This is critical uh, that we make decisions that are based in best practice and not based on a stereotype, not based on a bias, uh, not based on some other belief we may have about a person because of the way they may look, the way they may talk, uh, what their religion is, what their sexual preference is, where they're from, uh, uh, if they're poor, if they're aged, if they live rural versus urban, we have to start to step back from that and say, this is a person and we need to practice the best medicine we can and apply the best principles of medicine that we can to help this person's health. Uh, and lastly, I think I cut you off with those slides. So I will stop there and okay. hopefully we'll have some uh, good questions to answer. Thanks, Madge. Boy, thank you, Ron. You really got through a lot of that material and practiced that well. I really appreciate it. A lot in all your comments. And one of the things, uh, make a quick connection, sort of looking ahead to uh, Abigail's point and all points and also Anurag, who's coming up is it's interesting uh, how to begin to develop new kinds of questions to be asking uh, mm -hmm. in, in the exam room um, as you're thinking about sort of new uh, techniques and ways to really sort of change the dynamics, which I think is part of what you're getting at here, uh, Ron. All right, just before we go to Anurag, I'm going to let's bring up the poll results. John, can we take a peek? Uh, we can take a peek. Uh, right. I'm, I'm trying to make them show, but they are not sharing. They're so not I sharing. Will, I will let folks know what the uh, results were, um, if, if, if you can give me a second. All right. Um, so we had 2% for strongly disagree. Yeah. We had 7% for disagree. We had 10% for not sure and 32% for agree. Uh, and lastly, strong agree was 5%. So we had about 37% uh, for agree and strongly degree All right. agree combined. Okay. What was the disagree again? The disagree was 7% plus 2%, so All 9%. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your participation in the poll. It's just a way of our kind of doing some, you know, self-acknowledgement uh, and reflecting. Uh, take it as you will, but it sounds as though people in some ways are saying, honestly, biases do enter in. Um, and I think that's the reality that we're all trying uh, to understand and improve upon. So Anurag, uh, a lot of people joining this WIHI may be familiar with diversity training as part of their workplace mm -hmm. experience, but they may be less familiar, I'm gathering, mm -hmm. with implicit bias training and no less this notion of hacking bias. So talk about uh, Be More America and what you are up to. Thanks a lot, Anurag. Yeah, thank you for having me here. This is so exciting. Just a comment about the poll. Um, this is why I really love the health profession, because of the kind of honesty and transparency with which it operates. Actually, the polling results are quite consistent with the research that we had done. Um, there was some research that was done that asked health professionals um, if they acknowledged that, you know, bias entered their or interfered in their medical decision-making, and about 55% of professionals said yes. These are doctors and nurses. Um, and it's quite similar to what we found out today, about 47% are either not sure or agree or strongly agree. So that's really exciting, um, which is very unlike my, the profession that I came from, which is the law, where um, you know such um, things oftentimes aren't answered in such an honest way. But I think that you're absolutely right. A lot of people are aware of diversity training as part of their work experience. Uh, but implicit bias training is different because the goal of diversity training is to give providers specific skills around cross-cultural communication and cultural sensitivity, whether it's from people from different ethnic or racial backgrounds or sexual orientation or immigrant background. Um, our trainings are really about understanding and hacking implicit or unconscious bias. 
So unconscious bias, the way I like to define it in a very layman's term, are ingrained habits of thought that lead to errors in how we perceive, reason, remember, and make decisions. And the important thing to remember is that, you know, over the last 20 to 25 years, we have over a thousand studies that have proven the existence of unconscious bias beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's really important. So basically, it's operating and it's been shown to affect discriminatory behavior across industries, particularly in healthcare. So the way unconscious bias trainings works is that first we have to acknowledge that unconscious bias is actually operating. And part of it is like it's unconscious. So our goal is to help healthcare providers hack that bias. So what we do is we provide specific um, evidence-based tools to shift the underlining beliefs, perceptions, and behavior that not only improve uh, patient-clinician rapport and interaction, but also the clinician's well-being. So, you know, as the white paper and some of the other panelists have described, um, you know, unconscious bias exists and it has all sorts of ramifications. But the good news is this, that we as human beings have this ability to rewire the brain, something called neuroplasticity. It's been kind of in the neuroscience field uh, in the past um, decade or so. Um, and, you know, unconscious bias, if you think about it, it's pretty much a product of habit. So much like various behavioral and cognitive therapies out there, because there's a way for us to measure unconscious bias, so if the participants haven't taken the implicit association test or the IAT, I would highly recommend everybody to just type in RACE, race, IAT, and just take this test. It's pretty much one minute of your life, but then it'll show you your automatic preferences and assumptions when it comes to phenotype, uh, when it come, and specifically to race. And the important thing is to understand that this isn't just a white or black thing. A majority of Americans, 75% of Americans, have an automatic white preference or an automatic unconscious bias towards people of color. And this includes people of color. This includes patients of color. So a majority of African Americans, a majority of Latinos, a majority of Asian Americans also have this unconscious bias. Now, what's the cause of that? This is basically what we do. We kind of go into the research that's called together the causes of why this is happening in the body, in the brain. Like, what are the mechanisms that actually create these unconscious biases? You know, the constant stimulation that we receive from our surrounding environments, um, the stories we have, you know, attached to people's different phenotypes, which really goes to the cystic fibrosis example that Ron shared. You know, when we think of a patient of cystic fibrosis, the first thing that comes up for us is not a black child or a black female child, it's someone else, right? So being able to be aware of that and then transform that. So I'm sure you're all like, well, how do you do that? Um, the cool thing is because we can measure it, we can also reduce it. You know, that's something that um, has been what the sciences have advanced in the last few years. And what we do is we um, employ a lot of mindfulness strategies and combine them with some of the strategies that the paper shares, like perspective-taking individuation, stereotype replacement, but using mindfulness as a medium to actually help people train the brain, train the mind, train their habits um, to reduce bias. And, you know, we've seen it work. We have a measurement, which is the IAT, to show a shift from strong preference to moderate preference to slight preference to being neutral when it comes to um, taking the IAT. In addition, there are specific other metrics that we've developed um, around understanding people's explicit beliefs. And these aren't ex actually, these aren't explicit, these are unconscious beliefs that they may have that have been untested and un, um, you know, unquestioned in the past. So for example, there was a UVA study that came out earlier this year. It was, it was among all the white residents and medical students at the University of 
Virginia, and it asked them questions like, you know, black people have thicker skin than white people. How many of you agree? And there was actually a sizable number of people that agreed with that statement. Black people have less sensitive nerve endings than white people. Black people are more fertile than white people. You know, things like this. Of course, all of this is bogus. It's completely bogus. But these are physicians. These are residents. These are medical students in 2016 responding to these questions, right? So these are, again, the unconscious beliefs that are operating very much at a subtle level that need to be transformed. And the way to do that is to really create a setting where people can actually ask those questions and we're actually transforming those beliefs and measuring those beliefs over time um, for the participants. Um, I hope that's helpful. Yes, <laughs> most most helpful, and appreciate some of your examples, Anurag. And yeah. hopefully, folks will have some questions about kind of what happens. And we we're aware yeah. that you've got the, these trainings uh, coming up, and there are you know a, a number of groups out there kind of doing this kind of work. And we're thrilled that you're mm-hmm. part of our program today. So I hope there's some real curiosity about what it means to bring people together to work on this. Um, I can see folks are, are lining up in the chat <laughs> and at okay. the microphone, and uh, we're going to um, – we'll get to your questions in just a moment. So uh, hold on. Uh, thank you, Anurag. And now let's turn to mm-hmm. Abigail from uh, the Southern uh, Jamaica Plain Health Center. Um, I think part of what's going on uh, with Abigail and what she's going to tell us about just reminds us of what a group of people can start to do. Uh, we're, we're talking about solutions and ways to start undoing certain things and getting at certain things. So, Abigail, welcome and thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, great to just listen to what folks are saying. So we, um, I'm here to just talk about an a initiative that we engaged in over the summer that we called Liberation in the Exam Room. And just by way of context, um, our health center, we have about 12,000 patients. We're in Jamaica Plain in Boston. And um, as a health center, we sort of have a real commitment to public health and thinking about the denominator population uh, in our community. And over the years, uh, I've been here for 12 years at the health center, we've gotten clearer about the impact that racism has on um, pretty much all the areas of social determinants, education, housing, health care, and um, really been educated about from our community organizing partners, from folks at the Boston Public Health Commission who have done some great work around this, um, about needing to get clear about how to talk about that. So uh, we've done a lot of organizing. We've gotten engaged in transit work and employment organizing to, to work um, across you know, different communities uh, as a health center and step into that. And all along, a lot of our physicians and other medical folk have come to us and said, you know, we really believe in this. We, we see the data. We see it's happening in the community. What do we do in the exam room? Like, how do I manifest this understanding in the exam room? So that was really what has, in each year we were like, we gotta talk about this. We, we really wanna learn more about this. We know about unconscious bias training. We've done some of that. Um, we certainly know about diversity training, but um, it really wasn't fitting into our analysis of how racism worked. Um, and I, I do wanna say that we sort of unapologetically are leading with race. Our motto is we address racism explicitly, but not exclusively. So we, we need to start with that lens to understand the epidemiology that we're seeing in our community. So, and I, I put this slide up just so that folk um, can see what we really see the differences, you know, that racial justice work and any kind of anti-oppression work is not about diversity because as they say at Race Forward, um, you know, you gotta, you can't just mix it up, you gotta fix it up. 
Um, and you know, equity to us is really about um, fairness, and that means that we have to look at systems. So the first thing we did with our group of docs, how we recruited them, is we, we just reached out to all of the folks who had shown interest, who had come to our racial justice trainings, who had engaged with us on health equity work and organizing work, and put the APB out over email, and every single person I emailed responded. So, and this is a range from residents to folk who are mid-career, you know, medical directors. Um, and I just felt this incredible hunger and thirst from people to, who wanted to have these conversations. We had the meetings at 7.30 in the morning <laughs> throughout June. We had three meetings, and folks showed up and participated. And the first thing that we did was um, share a definition. So again, you know, even on this call, you know, I think we have to start to share glossaries and definitions about what it is we're talking about. Um, so we use David Wellman's definition of racism, which is a system of advantage based on race, which operates at these two levels. Um, then we got our docs together um, and really had a conversation about how to build the container for these three meetings. And I know we have a lot of physicians on the call and I'm part of the medical community and we often think that doing this work is a neck up exercise and it is not. I think we have to get more comfortable talking about how to integrate both your head and your heart um, and, and do this work from a, a more of a values place. Um, in many ways, a feeling is required, right? When we see that data from white medical students, if we're not having a feeling about that, I don't think it's going to really land, and I don't think we're going to really work on it. Um, so these are the values that our group of physicians came up with. We, we worked the definition together. And then the next thing we did was looked at a huge lit review that a bunch of med students did for us. Um, so we talked about implicit bias. We talked about cultural competency training. We pretty much threw cultural competency training out the window. We felt like that didn't that was more of a cookbook way of thinking about diversity and not a way of really looking at structures and systems. And we decided that implicit bias training was fabulous as long it was, as it was part of a larger understanding about power. Um, because one person's bias isn't bias isn't bias. You know, as was already said, this stuff is, um, you know, systemic and it's, it's, you know, biases toward, negatively toward folk of color, toward women are all, you know, within the entire population. So it's not like everybody's bias has equal weight when it's played out around policies, procedures, and practices. And I think we can agree in, about that when we look at our data. So um, we sort of talked about implicit bias, but then we said, all right, so we're going to talk about our biases, but when we are being our most explicit, because I think the goal is to make what's implicit explicit, how do we manifest our understanding of structural racism in the exam room? And we asked the docs, what are you doing now? And I got to say, the first person who was a resident said, well, I think you just have to name it immediately. And he said that he has consistently been starting his um, yearly physical. And again, he, he actually works with only people of color. He's a white doc. Um, and he said, the first thing I say is, you know, a lot of my patients experience racism in healthcare, and I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to share with me. And he said that it was the most effective first question. He said it worked so well from the first time he used it that he's used it consistently for a year, that it immediately created trust, it immediately demonstrated that he understood that the, this is structural. It's, it's, we can't just, if, even if all of us take the bias test and we all pass, the policies, practices, and procedures that create inequity aren't going to go away. We don't need any more bad actors to continue to perpetuate racial inequity and other forms of oppression. So um, I just listed a couple other things that uh, docs had come up with. 
We decided that we were going to go away after these three sessions, do what we're calling our racial justice PDSAs. So that's just, <laughs> I know people have been trained in that, and that we would come back together in October and share uh, what we've tried. And I'm happy to give more examples about what people are going to be working on, but I, I want to stop talking just so we have more time for questions. Well, thank you so much, Abigail. And I think these questions in the exam room are, I hope you're downloading these slides and really thinking about uh, really incorporating or trying out some of uh, these questions in terms of your own PDSAs. Um, and uh, yeah, Abigail, we'd love to learn more. I mean, something maybe we can even add to our website or archive page, you know, with Alex's help also just get the word out what you did find out, you know, um, and what you continue to learn. Uh, by changing the dynamics. And can we just put up the last oh, slide? Oh, yes, go ahead. Uh -huh. I just, you know, this is a this is a very explicit uh, statement that a number of docs have been making nationally about how to communicate with patients about racism. It's very structural. I think they, they nail it in a bunch of different ways in terms of the work we really need to do within the healthcare system. So I, I encourage people to read it and if you are inclined to sign it. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. And a reminder, again, we did uh, give you a link to the slides. You can uh, get the slides from info at IHI.org, download them. They'll be on the archive page. I don't know how you're going to miss these slides, frankly. All right. I am... Um, <laughs> Lots we put before you. We did decide with this white paper, we did a, uh, not too long ago, we had another program on WIHI in which we looked at some of those big overarching things KDAR started us off with, which is some very big levers that health systems might be able to pull to change some dynamics in the community in terms of contracting and hiring and really in some ways, um, you know, getting engaged much more in some very, very basic issues of people's livelihoods. Uh, and opportunities. Um, we decided with this WHI, we dig into the implicit bias thing, something that's very, very foundational. The white paper also talks about institutional racism as well. So there's a chunk in it, and I'm just going to ask Vicki, who's here in the studio here, just to remind folks once again of the link to the white paper. We really, really do hope you'll uh, spend some time with it, talk about it in groups. Maybe it's a basis for um, some discussion, you know, getting something together like Abigail is talking about. All right, um, Alex is going to hold on for a moment with maybe some thoughts he has about uh, what's going on or how an organization itself can walk the talk. And we're going to turn to the chat. Um, I do see some questions that have already come up, which we'll try to get, and we'll try to get to as much as possible in the time we have. And, uh, John, just a quick reminder to everyone how to use the chat. Oops, I almost forgot. We're going to mention something. We're trying out some new format things. Okay, RPDSA, right out in the open here, John. Go ahead, and then we'll tell people about chat. Thanks. Small test of change. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, financial pressures are changing in healthcare, and uh, clinical leaders who provide high-quality care on a daily basis still need to be able to demonstrate the value of the services they provide. What happens when you can't demonstrate the value you're creating for your hospital? IHI is proud to offer Applying Value Management to Healthcare, a new seminar to help frontline clinical leaders learn the financial tools to articulate the value they're creating for patients. Perfect for your operational leaders, your QI managers, and financial staff. This in-person seminar will help your team design tests to resource more effectively, teach them specific tools to give insight into quality and value, and create a better understanding of the financial information that can better inform frontline decision-making. Applying Value Management to Healthcare will be held November 2nd to 4th in Washington in D.C., and you can visit IHI.org to learn more about our seminar and even see a video of Don Berwick uh, talk about the importance of value management on the front lines. For more information, feel free to reach out to us at info at IHI.org. 
Thanks, Madge. And thank you, John. All right, anything special for chat? For chat, just be sure to send uh, the send to all participants in the chat bar down in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. All right, thank you. And some of you are already on there. So I really want to hear from folks. I want to hear – I know we threw a lot out at you. What resonates? Um, I want to put back up uh, some of these questions uh, in the exam room from Abigail. And I'm curious uh, if any of you can imagine – asking some of these questions uh, or have tried anything similar and let us know what your question has been or how you might uh, change some of these dynamics. Um, and uh, have you been involved in any trainings uh, of the sort that Anurag has been talking about in terms of hacking unconscious bias? Um, all right. Here's a question that has come up a couple of times in the chat, uh, and uh, it's been asked in a few different ways. Somebody is wondering, what's the difference between statistical trends and bias? Another way I think it was put is, how do you, what's the difference between understanding that certain groupings of people have higher uh, propensity for certain diseases and sort of groups and diseases and understanding that is actually an important and informed way to practice versus bias. Uh, and I thought I'd throw that to Ron, um, you know, who's certainly practiced medicine. And I think maybe this has come up, uh, Ron Wyatt, in other conversations you've had. In other words, at, at, I know you know what this person is getting at, but somehow having – what, somebody is, is worried in a way that we're, we're, we're blurring something and it wouldn't be biased at all. Uh, but maybe right. maybe it is. Go ahead. Sure. So I'll, I'll take a shot at that. So um, you know, I'll start out by saying we, we have this thing called race uh, that is, uh, in my mind, a social construct. So uh, in medical training, we're, we're trained to take a comprehensive history and physical exam, uh, which means we're really trying to get to know this person who they are, where they came from, and what are, what are their risk factors. So in the paper, you, you see us talk about intersectionality. And I saw a comment on the chat that says, what if a person, in essence, has black skin but it has a parent that's Jewish, uh, who, who could, have, could be Ashkenazi? Well, we know that uh, there are genetic bases for certain diseases. And, and we're trained as, as physicians to investigate those, not, not make a decision uh, solely based on a person's skin color or race or whatever that is. So if we say that there is uh, some uh, genetic predisposition to some disease process, we need to have the, the uh, scientific medical curiosity to go after that and not allow our either implicit or explicit biases in, in a way control us uh, when we start to make those decisions. Now, beyond that, uh, it somehow becomes a myth, and, and some of that has been talked to. So I, I put some of that under some of the myths that we've operated on in medicine for far too long. Um, so it gets back to what we learn in medical school as physicians and nurses. Look at the individual, and that's why we put that uh, as a bullet point in debiasing techniques. Look at that individual. Do the thorough history and physical. Try to understand as much as you can about what that person's predispositions are and risk factors are. So, for example, when I was in academic medicine probably over 20 years ago, uh, I told medical students to stop putting race on their history and physical, to go in and look at that person in front of them uh, and start to make decisions based on your history, your physical findings, their family history, and then you start to construct an approach to properly manage that person and to deliver the best medical care you can, not based on, not based solely on what that person's 
skin color is or what they may look like or what decisions you've made just when you walk in the room and see this person and you automatically assume that that person is white or black or, or some other race or ethnicity. And there are certainly examples of physicians who walk in the room and see a person that phenotypically uh, they think is a white person. And that person says, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm black. Um, you know, so we have to break through those barriers and move back from our stereotypes to try to make the best decisions. And that can be um, scary for some people uh, because you have to come out of si- outside of what, you, what you've uh, learned over some years. And in some places, unfortunately, what's been socialized as a part of um, medical training. And I'll stop there. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Abigail, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to really um, exp- I, th- I do think that we need to look at the history of medical education and medicine in this country. And, you know, a lot of all of our history came out of eugenics. So, you know, Hitler was taking the data and research from us. And so, you know, I think we need to be thinking less about we have to look at race and use race as a way of understanding what's going on because of the impact of racism. Right. So it's not I I really in many medical spaces, I still feel as though folk think of race as genetic and it's not right. Like sickle cell, Tay-Sachs, that's about migratory patterns. There's folks with sickle cell in Greece. So it's the idea that that's somehow associated with blackness, this socially constructed thing. It makes no sense. And so I just want a quick example. I heard from one of the docs that when she was in residency, she had the exact same experience at two different hospitals. Uh, Both of them were providing mental health care. So a a person of color, black man, comes in to be hospitalized, and the attending said, I want everybody to be aware of your racial bias now because of racism. We are going to over, we could, we are at risk of over medicating this individual because we see his behaviors as aggressive when they're not. And that totally was a game changer. Then she was in a hospital where the exact same thing happens. No biases were addressed. And as a young resident, she watched this guy get over-medicated and, in fact, got very sick because he was considered aggressive. So, again, it's, it's not naming, oh, this is a black man. We have to, his blackness is somehow making him at risk of something. It's, it, blackness is going to invoke a structurally racist reaction. Uncon- it's not bad people. It's in the drinking water, right? Yeah. So, Thank you, Abigail. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. very right. illustrative. Thanks a lot. All right. Okay. Uh, powerful examples. I want to get to uh, some additional questions. Uh, thank you also, Anurag, for providing some additional resources in the t- chat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to turn to uh, Alex uh, for a particular question. Can somebody provide some examples of structures can, that can be created to govern health equity and team composition? Alex, go ahead. Thanks, Madge. I think this is a really, really important question because every organization has teams um, doing the work to fulfill their mission, to fill their their charge as an organization, and um, there are opportunities to think very deeply about um, how teams are composed, how individuals are equal members of having shared power in decision making. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for improvement. And this is something that IHI has taken on um, as an organization to make sure that we develop the teams that are capable of doing the work that we want to do as an organization. And so I'll talk a a big picture really quickly about um, how we reviewed our hiring practices to address the structural racism of hiring practices in America. Um, And so IHI, like many organizations, falls into um, or is continuing to improve the way that we operate and think about um, building our teams. And so 
Several years ago, we looked at the compositions of our teams, the processes that lead to hires, and realized that we were falling into um, pitfalls that are very common amongst many organizations, relying on rolling admissions, relying on referrals from friends of friends and personal networks, um, relying on cultural fit when thinking about thinking about filling jobs. And so we said, how can we use quality improvement to address that? How can we slow that process down, standardize it, and think about actual meaningful reasons to hire individuals. So we made specific changes. We said we're going to slow down our hiring process. We're going to make sure that our hiring pools are representative of the community where we work, of the community where we want to deliver our work. And we didn't move forward with our hiring process until we hit certain benchmarks. So, for example, in the greater Boston community, the overall diversity of available workers is about 30%. So we made sure that at every stage of our hiring process, through the interview um, resume correct collection, um, phone interviews, in-person screen that that pool of candidates hits at least 30% overall diversity. And if it doesn't, we say that's okay. We need to slow down and make sure we do a better job reaching out into the community. Um, and then, so that's a, that's a system change that you can make as an organization. On a day-to-day change on thinking of your team compositions, a really easy thing to do, especially as a white person in an organization with a lot of white people, is to be vocal. If you're in a room with a meeting, having a meeting about a decision for your team strategy and everybody in the room is a white person, you can say, say, hi, we are all white people here talking about a decision that is going to affect more than just white people, and we're probably not thinking of every facet of this decision. And that's an opportunity to slow down, to say, how can we involve more people, get more voices in this room, and make a better decision? All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Really appreciate that. Uh, an illustration from here at IHI, and perhaps others uh, from other organizations might want to weigh in uh, with some of your own experiences um, with that. Interesting question somebody has asked is, what is the role of patient family advisors on QI projects and QI committees dealing with improving equity uh, in healthcare? I don't think that per se is dealt with in the white paper. Kate, or is that something I might be able to toss your way, sort of how you might think about that? I, mean, I think in the same way that Alex just said, if you're in a room and trying to make a strategic decision for your organization and you look around the room and the room doesn't represent the stakeholders that might be affected by that decision, um, you should probably think about how you want to compose your your committee structure. It seems to me that if we are trying to design services um, and uh, that would be that would work for the communities uh, that we're trying to uh, work with, um, that you need to do that with the, the folks from the community, uh, including all uh, uh, racial and ethnic groups that are part of your community. So I think uh, the question makes very good sense that, and you know, having a diverse group of patients and family advisors on your quality improvement committees and, and sort of providing oversight and guidance uh, to your quality strategy makes a lot of uh, very uh, makes very good sense. Um, I, I wanted to also just make one comment about the uh, question around uh, you know, structures and governance models to govern health equity, uh, which, of course, quality improvement committees could be part of, by the way. Uh, but we have seen some health systems, a good example is Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan, that have created uh, executive-level leadership uh, positions uh, Kimberly Dawn Wisdom uh, at Henry Ford uh, serves as the Chief Wellness and Diversity Officer, also the Community Health and Equity Officer. So she's the, there's a C-suite level position that they've created 
that focuses on health equity. And, you know, they've also created a center for healthcare equity with a governance structure that's uh, uh, derived from the communities that Henry Ford serves. So I think there are ways of creating uh, both leadership systems and governance systems uh, within healthcare delivery systems today that can uh, uh, oversee work on health equity and govern work on health equity to answer the question that was asked earlier. Thanks, uh, Kadar. Anurag, I want to ask you, um, I'm curious uh, if you were could describe um, maybe one of the most surprising or perhaps dramatic things that has happened during one of your trainings. I imagine it can be a pretty intense experience for some. Uh, you know, and and I'm, I don't I don't know. I thought you might be able to sort of give us give us a flavor of kind of what kinds of things can happen uh, in that kind of training that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the way we look at we look at you know structural inequity, particularly based on um, various um, identities that people carry, particularly race and gender. Um, they're pretty much a result of individual actions, right? Particularly people with decision making power. So our model is really targeting people with decision-making powers. If you think about a doctor, they're the person who's oftentimes determining how their patient's health is going to be, you know, how they're going to take care of their health, and they have to ask specific questions around um, the the diagnoses and all the things that associated with their health uh, will be conducted. So what we do is really, you know, help them understand what their unconscious biases are for the first, and then what are the causes of those unconscious biases. You know, and it's very individualized because, yes, we have the bell curve around the pervasiveness of unconscious bias in our culture, but, you know, all of us are individual points on that bell curve, and our color and racial ethnic background doesn't determine where on that bell curve will fall, but we have to determine where we are on that bell curve, right? So we actually help them do that and then train them in these strategies that reduce bias. So one of the things that's happened, um, this is actually an African-American doctor who was in our training, and for him, I think what's been really difficult as a clinician was that they've been, he's encountered instances in his lifetime where people have refused care from him um, because of, and he was a dark-skinned person, so because of his color, because of his, uh, the way he looked. And for someone who's gone through so much training and so much education to be where he is now, to then just have that thing happen to him over and over again, you know, it could be really um, alienating as well as um, harmful to actually stay inspired to be in the career to provide health care. But I think what happened, what shifted for him in the training, and this is what he said in our evaluation, was that now he has tools to understand how to deal with such a situation, right? What, what ends up happening is that, again, we have these unconscious associations, and our training really helps people make the unconscious conscious. The goal is that when we know better, we do better. So once he's understood where some of his patients who are refusing care from him are coming from, like what are those belief systems, what are those perceptions that are preventing them from actually receiving care from him just because of the way he looks, he's able to kind of ease into it versus being, um, you know, just internalizing that kind of experience. So that was quite moving for us. Um, And the other example that really comes to mind was another doctor um, who works in the VA services, so he, most of the population he serves is are veterans, as well as people that have kind of, I mean, he himself is a veteran, but that have come out of war, that have served in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. And most of these individuals are very low income, kind of living in the margin of society, um, and then being able to relate to his patients in a way that he couldn't before. 
So, you know, we, the strategies we really train people in are called PRISM, um, which stands for, again, perspective-taking, pro-social behaviors, individuation, and a few others. And the idea is to really be able to cultivate the perspective of another, to cultivate empathy and compassion over a period of time. Um, and that kind of being able to kind of be removed from the reactive space to be in a responsive space, um, I mean, he basically shared that it was quite moving for him and also really helped him think about how he offers care to the people that come to him. So it's not just a statistic. Um, so, yeah, those are really rewarding experiences. And yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, and Alex just uh, very nicely reminded me that Anurag will be leading a session uh, at our national forum uh, this year. And uh, you can find out more about that actually on IHI.org. There is information about the national forum coming up, and there is a track at the forum called Equity. Uh, so we uh, can kind of sort of follow along and see what all the different uh, areas are that will be covered under that track. So thank you. All right, this is where we've got to go around the horn and just very quickly, gosh, have I made everyone wear track shoes today, um, just say uh, kind of some parting words and what we might be looking out for. Um, I think you kind of teased us, Abigail, with uh, sort of finding out what happens with all these PDSAs. So why don't we uh, turn to you, uh, kind of if we talk to you in a couple of months or six months, you know, what might we learn or any final thoughts for today's show and we'll just go around the horn. Thanks, Abigail. Um, well, I'll just say that, you know, remind folks to continue to not, you know, personalize the critique of systems, that we have really wonderful human beings working within systems that are perpetuating a lot of unhealthy stuff for our patients. Um, and we're duty bound to talk about that and not personalize that. Um, and I hope by mid-October, end of November, we'll have some really exciting, you know, this is all qualitative stuff, but reactions from seasoned docs who've tried to do some of these more, I would call them a little higher risk questions on the part of the doctor to sort of acknowledge some of this stuff. Um, and, and with, a, you know, 20, 30 patients, everybody's committed to a number that they've done. And I think that there's also going to be some folks who are going to try raising the idea of a glossary and shared definitions and a little more acknowledgement of the head and the heart connection at some of their staff meetings. So hopefully we'll have some cool stuff to report in on and uh, really excited for other folks to join in this process with us. We are really committed to getting off script. All right. Well, thank you. Very, very interesting to see the growth of liberation in the exam room. And Abigail Ortiz, is, uh, uh, really, it'll, it'll be wonderful to, to track and to learn from, from the work that you're doing. Ron, some final thoughts? Uh, sure. And, and thanks again to everyone who called in. And I will uh, just start by uh, re-quoting something that we say a lot at IHI. Hope is not a plan and soon is not a time. Uh, this is an urgent issue. Uh, and I would say that the... Um, mounds and mounds of research that have demonstrated disparities uh, are there for us. We don't need additional uh, mounds of research to tell us that this is an urgent issue, that if we ever to, if we ever achieve the triple aim and improve population health, we have to achieve health equity. It is an urgent issue. Uh, and, and then I will close by saying I'm, I remain more optimistic and more hopeful about achieving equity than any time in my professional career. So I uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you so much, Ron, uh, for, for taking part as well. Kadar, final thoughts from you for today. Oh, sure. Um, well, I just want to say, again, thank you to uh, the IHI team and everybody on the call who's joined us today. 
my last word is that IHI is still on a learning journey here. You know, we are um, invested in this. We think this is the right thing. We know this is the right thing to be working on around health equity. Um, but we want to hear from you. We're getting some very positive, good responses to the white paper and some of the things that we're trying to do with the paper now. But we uh, are looking forward to learning from all of you who are in the, in the trenches, in the field, working on these issues, and would love to learn more from you. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kedar. All right, Anurag Gupta. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. I have two things that I would like to say. I mean, for those of you in the New York area, we're actually doing a six-week course on hacking bias. Uh, it's on Tuesdays from October 4th to November 8th, and there are, there are open applications on our website, bemoreamerica.org. So we'll actually go through each of the prison strategies and people will be practicing them over time because, you know, bias is something that we have to practice in order to break it. It's not just a one-time thing. And then please look out for, we'll be doing some more online training and creating online products to really help people um, hack bias. So that's going to be happening in the coming six months. So please um, follow us, like us on all social media, and, you know, engage with us in any way. Um, we're really about creating solutions to this intractable problem, and I feel like we've been waiting around for a while, and all the research is there. What we now need is the moral imagination to move us forward. I so like thank you all for your work. I love the idea of moral imagination. Thank you so much, Anurag, for being part of today. And Alex, just some final <laughs> thoughts at all. Um, you know, we're moving forward here, you know, at IHI, thanks to you and others. So um, I, I, th I think I would like to echo everybody's statements of thanks and that this is a, there's an urgency here. There's a commitment from IHI. And um, most importantly, you can start today. You can start having these conversations at your organization literally as soon as you get off this this WIHI. Um, so you don't have to wait. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's a process that requires learning, requires growth, um, stepping forward, stepping back, but always having a commitment to equity. And so very excited to be part of that work with a great team here. All right. I want to thank our wonderful panelists today and thank you. Uh, audience, uh, you've been wonderful participants, and you could get in a few, you know, words right now before we uh, sign off. Thanks for spending this past hour with us. This is going to be archived uh, later today or by tomorrow morning, or you find it on iTunes or however you get your podcast. So please uh, take advantage of it and share it with others. Coming up on WHI, actually, we've got a program next week. What's next for electronic health records? And we've got a great panel. Uh, you can uh, enroll on that show as we speak. Uh, we hope to see you there um, as we, you know, dive into uh, also a complex issue right now, frustration in the ranks <laughs> dealing with uh, uh, the technologies and the software we're hoping or can kind of make things better. Uh, again, when you log off today, don't forget you can download the chat and any slides or you can find it all on IHI.org in the archived section. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future show topics and tell us uh, how you might continue this discussion on WIHI or in any other forums as we continue uh, to come at this from different angles. There are a wonderful group of people who help make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd, and I want to thank also Katie. McCormick from the 100 Million Healthier Lives uh, Initiative, who's been helping out on Twitter today. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day, everyone.